Thanks, Steve, and happy Easter to everyone. Great to see you this morning. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke 24. I was struck during the worship about what it means to preach after such a time of worship together as a church family. And you know, sometimes when you, when I get up to preach, it, it, most of the time I would say it has this feeling of like kind of wanting to turn our eyes to something that we, we know is coming or that we should be going towards. Uh, I think that's oftentimes what preaching is. Uh, I think at times like today though, after the Lord has already moved so powerfully, I think it's more accurately described as somebody getting up and saying, hey, did you see that? <laughs> so yes, we, we will celebrate and move toward things, but, but I think most of all what I want to do today is just stand up and honestly say, did you see that? Did you see that? Did we not see the Lord? Did we not see the Lord? And I think that's what my favorite thing about Easter actually is, celebrating Easter, that is, because it, it, it's not that... It's not that we're ho-hum at other times about the fact that Jesus is Lord and that he's risen, but there's something about Easter that lets us come out and admit that there's no pulling punches today. There's no pulling punches today. There's nothing to get cute about. There's nothing to be subtle about. There's nothing to leave to the interpretation of the viewer or the hearer and have a focus group and see what people came away with. There's nothing to double check and run by professional theologians. You're certainly not listening to one. There's nothing to make sure we got right in the original Greek and Hebrew or Aramaic if you're scoring at home. There's nothing to really obsess about in that way. There's, there's, the meaning and the reality of Easter is simply not in the eye of the beholder. It's just not. It's way more audacious. It's way more offensive. It's way more intrusive, personal, inescapable. And I would submit to you way more beautiful than any of that. We're here today, church family, to celebrate the true, authentic, unapologetic resurrection of the man, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, from the grave. Son of God, he's risen from the dead. It's done. It happened. We're here to unapologetically and unashamedly celebrate that. That's not subtle, so happy Easter. Happy Easter. We, did you ever think about the fact that, we, I mean, we must be insane. <laughs> we must have lost ourselves. We, there's some cable news channel where they're talking about us as weak-minded right now. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's so far the truest thing. I've, I'm kidding. It's not subtle. We're convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt of certain things, like God became man, the person of Jesus Christ. He lived a completely holy, sinless life. He gave that holy and sinless life on a cross, completely eradicating the eternal separation of God that you and I deservedly carry and are totally worthy of. And then after all of that, rising again to say, even death has been made conquered. That's what you and I are looking each other in the eye today and celebrating. So I'm going to celebrate that with you a little bit. And if you've heard it before, just enjoy it. We're going to celebrate it. 
And this means something for everyone, everywhere, in every time, every place anyone has ever been, anyone. It means something. It means that there's really, really, really good news. Super good news, as the kids say. Easter is when, I've, I've found that Easter is when it's the intersection of everything humanity hopes for. And really everything that we're inherently suspicious about. It's the thunderous collision of our deepest hope and our least subtle doubts. Easter is when we admit that great meeting place. The Russian author, I know you guys are up on your Russian authors, so I knew this would resonate. The Russian author Fyodor Dostoevsky, oft maligned and exiled in the 19th century, summarized his hope like this in this quote. He said, I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for, that all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage, that in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, for all the blood that they've shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened. There's something about human hope that's always just a little bit tormented, is it not? There's something about what we ultimately yearn for that's always draped in just a little touch of despair, even if it's just a shell of 1%. It's a, whisper, it's a whisper that says to us, I know what you're hoping for, but you know what's, you know what's really the case. You know, what's, you know what's reality. It's probably the way that Jesus' followers felt three days after he was crucified. The fullness of their hope which had always been a little bit twinged with, yeah, but Jesus, you're not going to Jerusalem to die, are you? That's, back up. Always been twinged a little bit with that, and now he's dead. And now he's in the ground with a big stone and Roman guards in front of it. And probably the women who were going to the tomb on the morning of the first day of the week, Sunday morning, with spices to clean and refresh the body and dress it, they probably were experiencing that hope twinged with now more despair as well and wrestling with that. It's, it's the plight of human hope, is it not? So if you found Luke 24, let's just read the first eight verses. And let's read it from that perspective of the fullness of human hope with the twinge of despair. Verse 1 says, On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. I love this, I love this phrase. While they were wondering about this, <laughs> Do you see a body? I don't. The stone was, that's some funny things. Uh, Talk amongst yourselves. 
while they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood before them. And in their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, probably the most logical thing that's happened yet. They bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He's not here. He's risen. It probably would have been more effective if Marie had just been able to tell them right there in that moment. (laughs) (laughs) He's not here. He's risen. And then listen to what they say. Remember how he told you? Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? And then they quote Jesus. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners to be crucified and on the third day be raised again. Remember? Imagine now the shift in hope. Hope that used to be just twinged with despair is that corner of hope's getting lifted out of being dipped in despair. There's a, there's a hope never been had before that is beginning to exist from the human hope that was always twinged. To a hope that can honestly, honestly, truly begin to be maybe unfettered and maybe a little bit wild and maybe a little bit all-encompassing because they remembered his words that he would rise again and they saw with their eyes he is risen. It's as if the angels, when they said, remember his words, ladies, it's as if they're saying, hey, don't be surprised. Please don't be surprised. Just stand amazed. Don't be shocked. Remember his words, but be amazed at what has happened. And I don't say that. It's just that, of course, Jesus is raised from the dead. Of course, the Father has raised him. And this changes everything. And they should have seen it coming. And I don't say that to cheapen Easter. I say it because it makes it more marvelous. Of course God has arrived at this victory. Of course he has. He was always heading there. I want to trace with you just for a few minutes of how we arrive at Easter. Of how we arrive there. Because from the very opening moments of creation, God created mankind to intimately know him in close relationship. That's how God created us. For intimate, close relationship with him. And every aspect of eternal existence for us as mankind was meant to be spent in abject enjoyment, fellowship with, and worship to the one true God. It's the design. It's the design. In Genesis chapter 5, it recounts just a simple couple of sentences about God's regard for mankind when he created us. It said, when God created mankind... He made them in the likeness of God. Spend months on that. He made us in the likeness of God. He created them male and female. And then what? He blessed them. He blessed them. From the moment of creation, a a gentle touch of relationship with God. Fullness, complete, everything in satisfactory fellowship, unhindered, unfettered, just created relationship with Creator. Let's not forget that's the intention of God. Always has been. 
And because mankind, that is Adam and Eve, were made in the image of God, fully without sin or separation from God, they had full and complete relationship with him. And that's everything about how God intended it to be for eternity. But as we know, or if you don't know, you should know, it didn't stay that way. Adam and Eve chose willfully to sin and disobey God, deciding to try to gain knowledge of good and evil and to be like God. The one thing God had explicitly said not to do. And suddenly, instantly, a separation occurred. Sin All that is dishonoring to God became a wash over all of humanity. And the immediate and complete effect of sin is that mankind is completely and irrevocably separated from God by necessity. There's been a change, a separation of holiness and those that carry sin, which is you and me. That is, now the fullness of relationship is abjectly impossible. It's done, it's impossible, it's broken. And it stood in stark contrast, if we remember, to God's original intention of creating us in the first place for that intimate relationship. The net effect is this. God is holy, he's perfect and blameless. He is set apart, unique only unto himself. And we now, mankind, are unholy, separated. Because the difference between holy and unholy, even if it's an inch, is a mile. It's just It's a net difference. It's a zero sum. There's no holier. It's holy and unholy. It's two categories. And because holiness and unholiness are polar, the distance between man and God is both instant, right away, and infinite, insurmountable. Instant and infinite. And it's a wholesale change of essence, a transfer from the original intent of God to our current state of circumstances. Separation from God because of sin, inherently in our DNA, inherently in our essence. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23, the Apostle Paul puts it like this. For all have sinned, and by all we mean all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. The turmoil and devastation of the world today bear this out. Bear it out daily. It it bears it out daily. And surely, if we're separated from God now in our life, we're destined for an eternity of being separated from God. We're destined for an eternity of being separated from God. Spent before death here on earth and after death forever absent from the presence of God in a place called hell. It only follows. And the wrath of holy God, still truly just, full of justice, is correctly poured out on us in that separation. And at once, we're reminded of that lingering doubt that always accompanies our hope. So if that's where it leaves us, where does it leave God? Where does this circumstance leave God? What's God's response to our separation? Remember, because of sin, our separation from God is both instant and infinite. And the unholy, in that infinite distance, simply can't do the work of taking steps toward holy. Unholy can't approach holy. Holiness by its very nature is going to repel unholiness. But is there a way, is there a way for holiness to begin to approach and draw near to that which is unholy? That's the question. 
can the justice and wrath of God correctly poured out on us at the same time be satisfied as the love and mercy of God? And suddenly, hopefully, we feel that hope rising up again. And we remind ourselves, don't be surprised. Just be prepared to be amazed. From the moment of mankind's separation of God, there in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve and sin entering the world and us existing now in that separation, God began a relentless drawing near to people. Just want to run through some of this with you just to show God's heart. Early in Genesis, God reveals himself to a man named Abram, later to be called Abraham. And God asks Abraham to do one simple thing, to believe what God tells him. And what God tells him is this. In Genesis 12, it'll be behind me. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all of the peoples of earth will be blessed through you. And it's not there behind me, but verse 4 says, So Abram went as the Lord told him. (laughs) He believed the Lord. Now Abraham then spent his life, albeit imperfectly, walking in relationship to God, albeit broken relationship. And God, in a covenant to Abraham, begins to grow Abraham's lineage and descendants. God is beginning through one man to come and infiltrate, and the holy is beginning to make its way toward the unholy. And soon God transitions from simply having a covenant relationship with just Abraham to moving that covenant relationship to Abraham's son, Isaac, and to Isaac's son, Jacob, who will be called Israel. And Jacob, Israel, has more sons and a larger family, and God now has this covenant with a people. And that people, circumstantially, find themselves in Egypt, and their generations begin to multiply. And as the generations multiply, now we have not just a people, but a nation that God is pouring into to reveal what and why. Through you, I will be a blessing to all the nations. And God, through a man named Moses, begins to speak about and demonstrate that he is a God who longs to deliver his people from trouble and calamity. And they had trouble and calamity. But God is now revealing he's He's revealing the next aspect of his heart that I long to deliver you. And the Israelites who entered Egypt as a people leave it as a nation. And we see God's heart of expansion. He's come to a man, Abram, Abraham, makes his covenant. Now that covenant spreads to a people. It's spreading to a nation. And God once again makes his covenant with the nation of Israel, revealing himself in all of his holiness through the law, through Moses demonstrating his physical manifest presence with his people, drawing near the unholy, or the holy to the unholy. And God gives his people a promised land in which he leads them in and conquering and settles them in. And the relationship between Israel and God is there and it goes in and out. (laughs) It goes in and out. Breaks up every once in a while. And they bear the consequences because they're sinful like you and me. And their existence 
as we see from the Old Testament, is completely broken. It's generationally broken. It's historically, physically, socially broken. It's everything about it is broken in every way because in every way they dishonor God and they turn their back on him and they break their covenant with him and God still pursues with the covenantal relationship. And God, through his prophets, is always speaking to his people, Israel. Always speaking to them. Always speaking of his closeness and of his impending coming salvation. Read with me in the prophet Isaiah, chapter 53. I'm sure for many these are familiar verses. But just let's hear them in the context of God over, over the ages, moving the holy close to the unholy. Verse 4 says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. What is God revealing to his people? What does it mean to hear those words in the moment from the prophet Isaiah? What does it mean to hear from Jeremiah in chapter 31 verse 33? This is the covenant I will make. With the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Those are two examples, but God's interaction with his people is literally littered with promises of his love and closeness and salvation. It's his through line of message to the man Abraham, to the man Isaac, Jacob, the people, Israel, within Egypt, the nation brought out. It's his through line of message. I will deliver you. And man is still sinful and separated from God. Justly. Because God's wrath and justice haven't changed. He's still holy. And all of the promises and all of the prophecies and all of the wondering and all of the holy moving towards the unholy culminates in what is quite honestly the most audacious choice God ever made. And that is this, that God himself became human. God himself became human. Merry Christmas, by the way. Oh, good, you're there. But wait, 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 wait. Every human is sinful, James. You've just been talking for a few minutes about how sin is in our DNA and, and the, unho- the holy and the unholy. And, and how does God, who's holy, become man who's unholy? And that's a great question. And only God can do what God did, and that is circumvent the sin nature of humanity. Circumvent the essence and the DNA of sinfulness. And by conception by the Holy Spirit, the man Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, is now on earth, and the holy invasion is afoot. The holy invasion is afoot. Jesus Christ, in that way, was fully man, and Jesus Christ, in that way, was fully God, and Jesus Christ, in that way, was fully sin-free. I'll give that a minute, because I still need a minute. (laughs) And Jesus Christ, completely without sin was asked to explain himself, and this is how he responded. For God so loved the world, 
that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus, explain yourself. That's it. And the holy had truly come to be with the unholy. Why? Because Jesus was coming to satisfy those two seemingly contradicting characteristics that are a part of who God is, his justice and holiness and his loving mercy. Two things that before we walked in sin, we could walk in intimacy with God in. But now we stand opposed to both. And Jesus was coming to bring them both together in God's dealing with mankind. It's why the angel says, remember his words in Luke 24. Jesus declared it clearly. The son of man must be handed over to the hands of sinners and crucified and raised again. Jesus had promised, just as God had promised through the prophets, Jesus Christ was fully without sin, yet he took the sin of all mankind upon himself to bear the punishment of being separated from God for us. You see the culmination of God's pursuit of mankind? Isn't it great to look each other in the eye and to say, what a celebration. What a celebration. Oh, and by the way, since it's Easter, God the Father raised him from the dead. God the Father raised Jesus Christ from the dead, making sure that not just our punishment for sin and separation from God was done away with, but that victory over death, the ultimate price of sin, was overturned forever. That separation from God was necessarily, fully, emphatically, and once and for all obliterated for those that he had created once and for all to know him. That's the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's the work of God the Father in raising him from the dead. That he's fully Lord of all. Happy Easter. Happy Easter. And can I just say, sorry, unapologetically, unashamedly, no holds barred, happy Easter. Happy Easter. I'm excited. (laughs) And knowing what God had always revealed about himself, and knowing how he had originally intended us to know him, and how we had stepped away from that, and how God begins to break in and bring the holy towards the unholy, culminating in being with us, fully God, fully man, Don't the angel's words ring true? Don't be surprised. Stand amazed. Don't be shocked. He's never stopped going after you. Just be amazed at the fullness of his victory. Be amazed at the availability of salvation. And by salvation, what I mean is to know God and to have relationship with him and for separation from him to be ended. That's what I mean by salvation. So what do we do if we want this great salvation? The million dollar question. What do we do if we want relationship with God? What do we do if we want to know God with the intimacy with which he fully first intended us to know him? What do we do? It must be pretty complicated, right? I just took 20 minutes to get here. It's probably a pretty complicated answer. (laughs) It's not. There's a hint. Let's turn to Romans chapter 10. 
I don't think it can be said clearer than this. Our, our opportunity to walk in the salvation given to us by Jesus Christ is this. Verse 9. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, for it's with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you profess and are saved. In in John 10, Jesus said, I have come that you may have life. And have it to the full. (laughs) I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. So I would submit to you that our, what, what we do to walk into salvation is not complicated. I would submit to you it's just clear. Everyone responds to Jesus. Everybody. Everybody responds to Jesus. It may be rejection. It may be acceptance, but everyone responds to Jesus. And I just want to say that as we, as I bring this into a close, today, if what you're hearing is, is maybe for the first time or as was prayed earlier, maybe for the hundredth time, but if something about what, what is being shared resonates with you as true, don't ignore that. I want to say today, I want to invite you to respond and not to reject. Not to reject. But I want to give an opportunity for anyone who has never believed in their heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and declared with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. I want to give that opportunity. And if that's you, I just want to be simple and clear about it and easy. If that's you, I just want to pray with you. Is there anyone who has never had the opportunity to do that and would like to right now to make Jesus Christ the Lord of their life, and to declare with their mouth and believe in their heart. Is that you? Just raise a hand, and I'll just pray with you right here. I know it takes courage and boldness, but it's the holy moving to the unholy, and it's what God has done for you. Is there anyone who would celebrate that for the first time today with me? And we're going to celebrate as a church family right now. And we're going to take communion together. We're going to celebrate the fullness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ unashamedly, unapologetically, without hanging our head, a no-holds-barred, no-pulled-punches Easter celebration. I want to invite the worship team, Nate and the guys, to come back up. And as we continue to celebrate the risen Lord, let's remind ourselves that when we come and we take the bread and the cup, it reminds us of the body of Jesus that was broken on the cross for us, To accomplish that sacrifice. To accomplish taking our punishment for sin. And the juice reminds us of the blood of Jesus. Which opens up the new covenant of relationship to God. Available to all of us. That's what we celebrate. That's what we celebrate. And it has such richness. So let's take the last few minutes of our time together today. As a church family on Easter. And let's just celebrate with communion. When the guys start playing. I'm just going to invite you to come down in your own time, take some bread and, and, and the cup and take it back to your seat and we'll take it together in just a few moments. Happiness? All right.